please welcome Tony Chapman. So when I was eight, I grew up in a poor area of Montreal, but we were considered quite well-to-do. I mean, the kids would come to our house for sandwiches in the afternoon. But at age eight, my dad developed some mental health issues. He became, back then it was called manic depressive, today he's bipolar. And very quickly, it manifested in him, months at a time, binge drinking and binge gambling and putting ourselves in a very precarious situation. And my mom, who was my hero, somehow with our three sisters kept a roof over our heads. I still don't know how. As a secretary, $12,000, $13,000 a year. When she died in her age 50, I call it old age because she just had so much stress. We let my dad spiral. We let him hit bottom. We actually didn't know what happened to him. Years later, I found out that he ended up in a mission in the east end of Montreal. And there he met a priest. And that priest devoted his entire life to helping people who were just hanging on by a thread. That priest somehow or other gave my dad the confidence to turn that thread into a rope and to pull himself up. He ended up in a veterinarian hospital. He kind of became that Jack Nicholson character in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Rode up and down the elevator every day greeting people, even though it wasn't a manual operator. And when he died, he died with the, the love of his grandchildren and his kids around him. So when you ask me why philanthropy matters, is when I see somebody on the street that's homeless, I see my dad and I see it could have been me. I think it's so important that we personalize because up and down the streets that we live, no matter what your neighborhood, there's a lot of people going through a lot of hell. I think that if we collectively come together as a society and take it personally versus getting overpowered by the numbers and the sense of helplessness, we can do some extraordinary things. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman. Joining me are three guests, and each will shine a powerful torch on why women in philanthropy matters. Beth Wilson, a director for some of Canada's most admired institutions, she's a corporate executive, and yet she's found time to dedicate her efforts to organizations like Sick Kids, the Wood Green Community Services, the United Way, and many, many more. Shraddha Walker is the managing director. Center Street Enterprises. She's a philanthropist and someone who, through her initiative, Kids That Give, is working tirelessly to encourage more young people who can to give back. And since 2015, Leah Denbach has been traveling to cities around the world, photographing the homeless and recording their stories, and publishing it in a book series called Nowhere to Call Home. Thanks again to the Woodgreen Foundation for organizing this Woman Philanthropy event. I'm so excited to have the three of you on because you really are such incredible testament to what happens when individuals decide to get involved. Shrad, I want to start with you and just take me back to your, when we talked on the, earlier on, you, you talked about philanthropy has always been part of my family. So just give us a sense of what does that mean? Because you talked about it, not just your parents, but for generations, that's something that's roared through who you are. Philanthropy has been part of how it was just part of how we were raised. It was part of the, the very fabric of our family. I think multi-generations going back to like my great-grandparents, through my grandparents, you know, whether it was through religious organizations or politically or through just social activism, 
giving back and helping others was just always a part of how they lived their lives. Um, it was just as natural, you know, as brushing your teeth, you go to school in the morning, whatever, and you help others. Whether that's giving time or giving money or however that meant supporting, you know, making a sandwich for the neighbor's kid who can't necessarily afford to have that sandwich after school. Um, that was just part of how the, the fabric of how we were raised. Do you ever frustrated that people might walk into your home that you didn't know or weren't invited, but your parents were saying they need us? Never. That was never frustrating. It was magical. It was wonderful that there were constantly, there was a constant stream of people who were looking either for actual support or just advice or just a shoulder to cry on, whatever it was. And that our house was, was that house that, that people came to. What brought your parents to Canada? My parents moved here in the 80s. I was four um, from the UK. Um, and I think that uh, they were just looking for a place. I th- they'd been, they very, very much enjoyed living in the UK. I think they were looking for a place where they could raise their three girls and, you know, not be constrained in the same ways um, as they, you know, would have been in the UK by just certain, certain social pressures and things like that. I think they also were looking to kind of set out on their own and forge their own path. As you put things in your knapsack tonight, let's just remember they came to Canada to raise their children. We have to make sure that we always have a country that people want to come to to raise their children. When was the first time you grabbed that toothbrush, as you said, it was like as natural as brushing teeth as a, as a child and said, there's things that I can do beyond just, you know, playing or studying or just being a kid. It's such a funny thing. And I've been thinking about this a lot since we, since we talked about it. And I honestly can't pinpoint a moment because it is such a toothbrush thing. Um, but I do remember being in high school. I went to BSS and it was such a integrated part of how we were, how our, how our school raised us and how we behaved at school, whether it's, you know, we're doing a gingerbread bake sale to raise money for something or, this Friday, we're not wearing our uniforms and we're all going to put in $2 for the privilege of not having to wear a sailor suit for a day. Um, whatever it was. We could have charged you $10. For that. <laughs> I was on the board. That was the greatest thing. You get, anyways, go ahead. Uh, it was. It was It was just part of, again, just part of the fabric. And it, it was so natural to us. But I think that was the first time that I connected it as not just being a normal thing of helping people and actually being a philanthropic effort. And so when did you decide in your life that one of the, your purposes or path was to do more to give back because society doesn't necessarily, it's not a pinball game. This is how much money are you making or what title do you have? I mean, when you get involved in philanthropy, it's very much, I'm doing it because it's the right thing decided that that was the path and you weren't worried about the validation of being you know, the next new thing. To be honest, I think the, the point at which I started to really do this actively and, and intentionally was after I had kids. Um, you know, we, one of the things that we always, we always tell our kids now is it's, you know, we're kind of like, it's like being Spider-Man, right? With privilege comes responsibility. I always kind of felt like it's hard to explain a Bay Street job to a four-year-old in a way that makes it seem like you're working towards social good. You know, if you're not like a doctor or a nurse or a teacher or whoever, you're, where you're actively helping someone. Um, so for me, I, it was um, being able to model those values in things that I was actively doing in a different channel. What's the most important lesson your parents taught you that you hope your kids will learn? Certainly putting others' needs 
uh, keeping others' needs at the forefront of your mind and, you know, approaching things with that idea of the greater good and not a selfish lens, through a selfish lens. So we heard there's 86,000 charities, if I have the number right. How can you ever prioritize and choose what matters most to society and what matters most to you? It's such, I wish I had a, like a smart answer for this. I don't, <laughs> it, it genuinely is like gut feeling. And, you know, we talked, you talked a little bit a little earlier about um, being led by the heart and, and compelling stories and nine times out of 10 for us, that's what it is. And whether it's stories that are brought to us or stories that the kids come home with and they, they've heard about something or they've identified a need, they've seen somebody who is challenged in some way and they want to help. Um, that's typically how we do it. One of the things I took out of the report and I certainly felt when I was chatting with you, in fact, it really felt it was your sister. Yes. Share a little bit about your sister and how that led you down a completely different path. Absolutely. So at the beginning of March, 2020, uh, my youngest sister, she was 30 at the time. A, she was a rising star at the Stratford Festival, singer, dancer, very dynamic. Uh, and she suffered a very severe brain hemorrhage and stroke. Um, she was in a coma for three weeks, so fell asleep and the world was normal and she woke up and none of the family could be around her. Everyone was isolated. Everyone was in masks. She lost all mobility on the left side of her body. Um, she had to relearn how to breathe, how to eat, how to talk, um, continues to be relearning how to move and how to regain her motor function. And leading up to that, as a family, we'd been very involved and very engaged with the UHN Foundation, just honestly, purely academically. Uh, we were just fascinated by the advances and the innovation that were happening there. I'd been to one of the transplant events and I'd gotten to hold a beating heart in my hand. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. But having Trudy go through this experience and seeing the, the level of patient care and seeing the, the way her recovery journey has progressed, you know, we're, we're fortunate to live in a place where patient care is extraordinary, regardless of who you are. But the difference that philanthropy can make to driving innovations and saying, hey, you know what? You seem like you'd be a good candidate. We're going to test this out on you because you're a 30-year-old stroke survivor, which is not something we see very often. That's all driven by philanthropy. And so seeing that in action and and benefiting from that really shifted our lens and our, our focus and our view um, towards those much more immediate needs um, than some of the things that I'd focused on, on the, in the past. So this is the first time we've met in person and mm -hmm. just sensing you're a fast talker. You've yeah, I am. Sorry. Such energy, <laughs> which is wonderful. But how do you find a way to prioritize? Because people like you are trying to do 26 hours in a 24-hour day, maybe 32 hours 30, in a 24-hour yeah. day. So how do you decide where to put your efforts so that you are meaningful, where you want to matter, as opposed to stretched to the point where... You lack some matter. I don't. I don't. I, that's something I struggle with. It's something I'm still trying to learn and figure out. Um, we were having a very good conversation just now about the importance of being able to say no, which I cannot do. Um, Teresa spent a year and wore me down to join the Woodgreen board. But, but then, again, I you also couldn't You took a year to say, say no to Teresa? You have, you have to put on a course. <laughs> Most people take two hours and they're worn down. You're becoming a thought leader. I know you don't like that word. So you're becoming very well respected in your ability to invite young people to get involved in philanthropy because we know the stats. 
people, less people are giving to charity and the people that are giving are giving less mm -hmm. at a time where we have massive needs. So this is a yeah. supply demand problem, economics 101, but you're finding a way to invite young people in. What, what's your secret? It's been really interesting. And part of it is just a lot of the work that we do sort of professionally deals with succession planning. Um, so that's helpful. But what we found is where my parents' generation were very happy to write a large check and go to a nice dinner. Don't get me wrong. I will never say no to a large check, but um, our generation is really, really invested in what the impact is. And we talked about this a little bit earlier as well. They want to see where, what the money is doing. They want to be engaged. They want to be involved. Um, one of the things that um, we do through the UHN impact collective, which I chair, which is our young leadership cabinet um, is that we want to bring in, doctors, we want to bring in the scientists, we want to understand what, how are we moving forward? And we found, saw a need that our kids wanted to get involved. Our kids wanted to, our kids were hounding us constantly about wanting to do bake sales and lemonade stands. There wasn't really a, a big forum for that. So we, we started one. So we, we set up a, an organization called Kids Who Give specifically to meet that need. Um, and it's really, I think one of the, and I think this is something that not consciously, but I think that's something that my parents really shared with us and imparted to us is that through philanthropy, through charitable giving, through community service, you meet like-minded people. You meet people who have similar values, people who care about the same things that you do. And that's how you build your network. And that's not, a, and not in a professional networking kind of way, but it's how you build your family. Are your parents still with you? They are. They must be very happy that you're, I hope and so. your kids are carrying on. I hope so. I want to take it to Beth Wilson now. Who's, you know, Beth, you are, I sorry, I creeped you out on LinkedIn. Oh, no. And, uh, <laughs> your, your resume is unbelievable. You are one of the most successful business people in this country, sought-after corporate director, which comes with massive director fees. Lots of, <laughs> and, and yet you Are you going to ask me for a check? <laughs> yeah, I am. And I, uh, but you, you chose to put a lot of your time involved in not-for-profit, sick kids, obviously with Teresa and stuff. I guess my question to you is why? Because there's a lot of validation in this world about a woman saying, you know, it's our turn for a seat at the table. We belong at that director's table. We belong shaping policy and high profile policy with power corporations and such. But at the same time you said that, yeah, that's important, but the other side's equally important. So I'm curious at how you rationalize where to invest that time. I guess your first question was, was why my parents ingrained that in me. So both my parents were teachers. We had a very comfortable middle-class upbringing, but my mom and dad were always involved. So I would walk the streets with my mom when she was selling, you know, daffodils to raise money for the cancer society. My dad volunteered fixing, um, um, uh, hearing machines for people with their, with their telephone systems. So as a, as a child, I saw that in my house in terms of, um, modest donations based on our means and then giving of time. But when I became, when I was in the professional world and starting out at KPMG, it was really my mentors at KPMG that set the tone. So I, I would say it was the culture of the organization and the partners I worked with that started ingraining from day one that, that you have, you're privileged 
And with, with rewards comes, comes responsibility um, and getting involved very early with, with United Way or other organizations and, and just growing, growing from there. So how do I pick where I spend my time now? Um, Interesting. You talked about my mentors back then. Did it. Nowadays, I think it's kind of the, the thing to do. I, I have to do this. It's part of the, you know, it's ESG. It's what we're supposed to do. How do you go from, oh, this is what we're supposed to do as an organization to what this is what we mean to do? So I can answer that question because I had the privilege at KPMG of uh, leading community leadership across the country and finding a way to light that spark in thousands of employees across the country. And it wasn't about because you have to do it. It was about the rewards that you got from doing it in terms of how it made you feel, how it made you grow as an individual. And it was, it was lighting a spark so people could, could give aligned with their purpose. So it wasn't about everybody rallying and doing the KPMG chosen strategy. It was about giving people the resources, the time and the permission to go and engage in their community and, and the mentorship and support and some money. Uh, to do that. And I found that once you light that spark in somebody, I don't think it ever, it ever dies. They just take it and they just grow with it. So let me roll back to the, to you now. You're at a point, you're knapsack, you're, you've understood it, you've played a role, you're seeing how it, it's material to people. In terms of your time and investment, how do you choose? Because there's one thing that's finite. We have 24 hours a day and there's infinite demand on people like you. How, how do you prioritize? Uh, I look for, first of all, I look for organizations that have significant impact. So Wood Green is a great example. I, I became exposed to Wood Green and its programs through Homeward Bound. Um, when I was involved with, with United Way and working with a giving circle of women who were looking to, uh, to provide a gift, uh, to an organization and a program that was really having an impact. And as we met the women and saw the program and, and could put a face to, to the rational part of the impact, it was, it was just hard not to get swept up in it and, and want to help the organization grow and build its capacity to expand that impact. So for me, I feel like it starts with my heart, but the real follow through is with my mind. So you kind of get me with my heart and then, and then I really want to see that there's impact, that there's, there's real sort of capacity to, to grow that impact and make a sustainable difference. You're one of the few women that have chaired the United Way campaign. You're, interesting, you just made an analogy between United Way, which is, I don't take this wrong, 20,000 feet up trying to develop, raise massive capital for many needs, and then you get involved Teresa and Wilgreen, and you're seeing a woman that might be escaping the circle of poverty. Yeah. What advice can you give to both to make sure that philanthropy matters and they're inviting people into their organization. I don't think it matters if you're at the United Way level or, or an agency or even program level. Um, you have to make it visceral for people. Uh, so storytelling and, you know, if you, I'm preaching to the converted if I'm talking to you about storytelling, but finding a way to tell the story and help people understand the why and the, and the impact is to me one of the most important things. And then following through with the, with the metrics. And I think it's really hard for some of the smaller grassroots organizations to have the capacity to do what donors are asking for today, right? Which is measure, track and measure the impact of your programs, you know, track the data, show us the proof. So if you're, 
you know, Woodgreen's a very sophisticated organization with some really great capacity and the ability to do that. I think there's a lot of organizations that are still struggling with that. So when I was in the agency business, it changed for me. I lost my soul when it became all data and we lost that emotive side of it. And when I look at some of the findings from the report saying, we have to stop looking at the data, how much money is going into the community versus the administration and start recognizing within the administration could be people that are willing to change the world, make massive impact. How do you counter that? Because the data suddenly says, oh, 98% of the funds go, I'm going to donate there versus, you know what? 10% might go to real change makers like you. Actually, in the report, and I don't know if we're going to talk about this, in the in the TD report, there was something in there that I found really distressing, which was this comment that a lot of women still want to direct their gifts to a specific program and they don't want to support administration and, and operating costs. And so, so for the business people in the room, to me, that's like saying to somebody, I want you to manufacture that high quality widget and have a, have a high safety rating for your employees. But by the way, I'm not going to give you money for an HR function, a quality and safety function, or a finance function, but somehow you better produce that widget. So, so we're kind of saying the same thing. If we say, well, I'll give you my money, but it has to go direct to this program and not support the infrastructure and the capacity and the people that, that make it happen. And, and that is a really important narrative that we have to, we have to change. The other thing you were a little pissed off about in the report, <laughs> and you almost, and you almost climbed through my Zoom screen when I was talking to you, when the report said women aren't really, they don't really want to be bold. They don't want to really step out there and say, I'm going to put my name on this. I want to make a difference. And you said, that's, that's not the case. <laughs> you said, bull and, and when it gets on my podcast, it'll be bull but anyways, so tell, tell me why that, because yeah. you were angry. You were coming right at me on that. Yeah. As if I, there was a, I forget exactly the quote, but it said it's time for, you know, women aren't making bold decisions. It's time to see some bold moves. Women aren't making bold moves in philanthropy. And I, I think I think that is dead wrong. I think women are making all kinds of bold decisions in philanthropy. They're informing the decisions of family foundations. They're informing decisions that people are making as a family or as a couple. Uh, what they're not looking for is the is the bold headlines, right? And their name and light. So bold decisions, but not bold branding, right? And so it's a mistake. I think charities make a big mistake if they think women aren't there and making bold decisions. Bold decisions, not bold branding. Put that in your knapsack. Thanks again to the Woodgreen Foundation for organizing this woman philanthropy event. When we return, more on why philanthropy matters. I want to give a big shout out to Woodgreen, one of the largest social service agencies in Canada. What they're seeing firsthand is our children, our parents, our neighbors, our friends and colleagues, and often through no fault of their own, are struggling with unemployment, food insecurity, lack of affordable housing, severe isolation, mental health and addiction issues. Hundreds of thousands of people in Canada are unhoused. Seniors are feeling unseen as they experience food, housing, and financial insecurity. Young people aged 15 to 24 are feeling unsupported, and they're more likely to experience mental illness and or substance use disorders than any other age group. And the lineup for food banks are increasing exponentially. One in five households are food insecure, and many are going unfed. To me, these numbers are unacceptable, and only through efforts like the Woodgreen Foundation, through philanthropy and with the support of volunteers can we begin to tackle these societal problems that are happening at our back door. 
You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman. Today I'm speaking to Beth Wilson, Shrada Walker, and Leah Denbach, who are each providing an important perspective on the role philanthropy plays in tackling some of society's biggest problems. Thanks again to the Woodgreen Foundation for organizing this Women Philanthropy event. So, Leah, I stole this piece of art out in the lobby. I'm not going to take it home, probably. You are such a gifted photographer. I brought purposely Eric M., Sean Donnelly from BE Works, Steve Pakins, great storytellers. And I believe a picture tells a thousand words. You photograph people on the streets with the entire idea of putting that light on the fact that humans. And I want you to share where your calling came from. So I was first inspired to begin photographing people experiencing homelessness by my mother, Sarah, who was homeless herself as a child. My mother was found uh, wandering the streets of Calcutta, India, when she was three years old by a police officer who took pity on her because she had a deep wound on her head and was bleeding at the time. And the police officer brought her to Mother Teresa's orphanage, Nirmala Shushubabin, where she was raised by Mother Teresa until she was adopted to Stainer, Ontario. So if it wasn't for Mother Teresa dedicating her life to helping people experiencing homelessness, my mother wouldn't be alive today so therefore I wouldn't be alive today. So it's definitely had a huge impact upon me, um, which is why it's become my inspiration for the work that I do with people experiencing homelessness. And I've taken on Mother Teresa as someone I look to as the work that I'm doing. Her quote that if we judge people, we have no time to love them has become the motto of my project. So you're a fashion photographer. You know, your job is to create imagery that creates an itch, that gets people to be engaged in a world where it's so hard to engage people. When I look at your photography, and there's a book uh, here, it creates another itch. How do you manage to tell such a profound story? How do you put a camera in front of somebody that's been on the street, holding up their hand for money that nobody looks in their eyes, nobody says hello to? How do you manage to capture the fact that that's a brother, a father, a sister, a mother? Like, how do you how do you have the courage to do that? Well, when I first started my project, I was I was only 15 and I really didn't have any goals in mind. I first started just trying to build my portfolio. But it was when I went out on the streets and first photographed someone experiencing homelessness and learned their story. It began to make me realize Almost all the stereotypes we hear about people experiencing homelessness, that they choose to be on the street, they're all addicts, dangerous, almost all, in often cases, aren't true. I found that these are some of the most kind and humble people that I've ever met. And I began to also realize what a big problem it was. So really that first day opened my eyes up to the reality and I decided instead of just building my portfolio, I want to take this on as a project to try to help in some way. And you're not just using now the camera, you're starting to put stories to it. How hard was that for you to actually write what you saw through the lens? So I tried, began to incorporate the stories because I found when I just had the photographs of people experiencing homelessness, there was still that kind of layer where people would look at the person and think, well, 
that looks like someone that's an addict that probably does heroin. Like they still make the judgment looking at the person, but when they read the story next to it and they see, oh, this woman, like a woman that I met in Australia, Kimberly, she told me she was having a happy life with her seven children, her husband in their house. But one day her son accidentally set fire to the blinds with a candle. Her entire house burnt down to the ground and she lost all seven of her kids to children's aid. And having all of her identification burnt in the fire, she's unable to get a job or to get her children back. So when it's hearing stories like that, that really make me realize it's, it's so much deeper than so often people realize that the stories are much more complex. Just another example, I was photographing the gentleman here in Toronto under the Gardner Expressway. And when I had met this man, Dexter, he told me that he spoke 13 languages. He served in the US military and was deployed to Osaka, Japan. And while there, his wife and son were killed by a drunk driver along with eight other people on a corner. And because of that, he had a mental breakdown and is now living under the Gardner Expressway. So it's these stories, I think, that are so important to share to make people realize the reality. Have you ever put a, a photograph out that somebody said, oh, my God, that's my dad or my mom, and you connected the family back together again? Yes, I, I have actually in, in many cases because I've been photographing hundreds of people experiencing homelessness over the past several years, and I put the photographs online so I've received comments back from uh, family and friends. And just to give you an example, I was photographing this woman named Becky uh, here in Toronto. And when I met her, she was less than a meter from a very busy road right by the Eaton Center. And I was very concerned about her safety. So I walked up and woke her up and asked if she would like to have her photograph taken, share her story. And she shared with me that she has lived in Toronto for 40 years and that she sleeps in the out of the cold facilities. But what really stuck with me is after I posted the photo online and I received these comments back and one woman told me that Becky was her birth mother and that this woman had been adopted. And another woman said to me that she had been searching for Becky for over 30 years. And if I had any information regarding her whereabouts to please, 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 she said, let her know. Um, and sadly, I learned that just shortly after I took that photograph, um, this woman, Becky, was struck and killed by a car in Toronto. So I, I have gotten a lot of feedback um, from friends and family, but that one um, especially stuck with me. I just want to wrap up because it's, you know, we could talk for hours, but I wanted to thank all three of you. There's so many incredible takeaways. I think everybody can do something. I think it's so important. It doesn't have to be financial. It could be intellectual. It could be emotional. It could just be saying hello. I think the that's the fact that you're, you could do anything, but you choose to do it because this matters and you get so much from it. And I want to end with you saying, Becky might not be with you now, but because of your photograph, people reconnected. Maybe somewhere hidden through all of this tonight, it's just human connections. So thank you all. It's Tony Chapman. Thanks for listening, and let's chat soon.